0: Galatians chapter 3, we'll dismiss our children, um, and they'll head over to their children's ministry. Galatians chapter number 3, we have a number that are sick and out and people traveling, and so we continue to to, uh, plug along here in this summer. Uh, We're praying for those that are sick and traveling, some sick of traveling maybe, but um, just as uh, part of the summer dynamic, but we thank, we're thankful for the truth of God's Word as we've been going through the book of Galatians here. Uh, this is about the 12th message here, and we're emphasizing, or finding Paul's emphasis in this matter of finding freedom. And, and so we're looking now at this middle portion of chapter number three, and Galatians is the book which tells us that we've been set free by the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that simply means if you don't know the Lord Jesus as your personal Savior, you can't know divine, genuine freedom. But if you don't know Jesus as your personal Savior, you can. And there you'll find freedom as well. Looking back through what we've talked about in chapter 3, let me give it to you and just divide it up here in three sections. Verses 1 through 14. Paul's giving an examination. And he's talking to them, how did you get saved? And it's good that we examine ourselves to make sure that our spiritual experience is a valid one. He said to them, do you have the Holy Spirit in you? How did you get the Spirit of God in you? Like Abraham, he points out, you're saved by faith. And like Abraham, we're to walk by faith. So he's getting them to examine themselves. And we're looking at this morning, verses 15 through 25, and here he expounds upon and he's explaining. You see, there were a group of people known as the Judaizers. They came in and trying to get God's people who were saved to go back to Moses, but that was not far enough. They wanted them to go back even 430 years before Moses and go back to Abraham. And they're emphasizing the law. Do you know the nation of Israel today is lost as a nation because of the wrong understanding of the law? And so that's why Paul's explaining. We're going to look at these verses this morning about the law. Then verses 26 through 29, he gives an exhortation to be aware, to be aware. There are false prophets, there's a false gospel that robs you of Not just salvation, but if you're saved and and you get off on these areas and you don't understand properly the law, you don't understand what liberty has been given to us, it'll rob you of spiritual riches found in Jesus. And so this morning, we're going to look at this part of Paul explaining the the, the place of the law. And uh, let's stand together and we'll look at verse 15 and we'll read down to... I'm actually going to stop at verse 22. Verse number 15. Brethren, I speak after the manner of men, though it be but a man's covenant, yet if it be confirmed, no man disannulleth or addeth thereto. Now, to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one. And to to thy seed, which is Christ. And this I say that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law, which was 430 years after, cannot disannul, that it should make the promise of none effect. For if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. Wherefore then serveth the law, It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. Now, a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. But the scripture hath concluded all under sin. That the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. But before faith came, we were kept under the law. Shut up unto the faith which should afterwards be revealed. I'm going to go ahead and let's go to verse 25. Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. This morning, I know this is a difficult passage, but I also recognize that while so many are accustomed to God's people, if they even bring a Bible to church, what they're wanting is a spiritual pep rally pill. And what this is given to us is, is part of God's very word. This was written by the Holy Spirit of the living God, and it is profitable. And so in our journey to go precept by precept through books of the Bible, we must get a hold of the fact that God has this for a reason. And while it may not have an immediate apparent application, it has quite a significant amount of rich theological purpose. And if we can get a hold of that, it will have its application in our life as the Holy Spirit thought it good for each of us. So this morning I want to preach on this thought. Why then the law? Why then the law? If the law does not bring to us salvation, why then the law? Or subtitle. He went from Abraham, remember us talking about Abraham, to now he's going to bring up Moses. That's where the law comes from. And so I believe Paul is going to tell us this morning, let's meet Moses. And then after doing so, let's meet Jesus. Thank you. Please be seated. One of my favorite episodes of Andy Griffith was when Barney was shouting at the two prisoners and he was explaining how things go down at the rock, better known as the jail cell. As he was shouting to these two prisoners, he says, quote, here at the rock, we have two basic rules. Memorize them so you can say them in your sleep. The first rule is obey all rules. Secondly, do not write on the walls as it takes a lot of work to erase writing off of walls. End of quote. Have you ever made rules like that? Have you ever seen rules like that? When I attended Bible college and Ambassador Baptist College in 1990, I went there the second year of the college and the rule book was rather thin. But by the time I graduated, it was rather thick because the students write the rules. As things came up, they would put it into a rule. And you wonder where some of these weird, strange laws come from. It comes from the infractions or it comes from the activities that may have been performed by somebody and those in leadership, they thought something needs to be done about it. I've thought about in our household, the Ingram household, I think my wife and I could boil down um, our rules with our children to three simple common sense rules And we consistently encourage them to follow. Number one is no talking back. Number two is no interrupting. And number three, obey the first time. The first time. You know, one of the reasons why it's it's important that they learn to obey the first time is because as parents, you're teaching your children how to respond to God. We want to obey the first time. But here's what I have found out with those three rules and any of them. By posting them on the refrigerator, it doesn't create the desirable behavior that we're looking for. It doesn't mean posting them is wrong. It just means it's not enough. The rules reveal what's important to us as parents, and they set clear expectations for our three kids, and they provide them with boundaries for appropriate behavior, and they communicate how we want them to interact with each other and with us. But at the end of the day, we also realize that these three rules, they don't create the obedience. They command it. See, rules are like that. Rules can guide behavior, but do you know that rules do not create behavior? Every parent knows that, or at least you should. Every police officer understands that. In the United States today, there are multiplied millions of people in jails, prison, or on parole, probation. Yet as a society, we've never had more laws on our books than today. Obviously, laws do not create compliance. And that's even true of God's law. On Mount Sinai, Moses received God's law. And it called, it demanded righteousness, but it could not create righteousness. And that's the basic weakness of the law. It, can, it cannot create within us the desire to do the very thing that it demands us to do. A law, God's law, it can guide us. It can guide right desire. God's law, however, cannot give right desire. As Paul puts it in this passage, Here that we just read, the law cannot give life. It can't. And the law's inability to give life is the thrust of the book of Galatians. The law cannot do the most important thing. It cannot make us alive. Only Jesus can do that. In John 10 and verse 10, he says, I am come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. But we live in a world of laws, rules, ordinances and policies everywhere we go everywhere we look someone is trying to lay down the law for us each one of us at any given moment we're under more many more laws than the ancient israelites ever were yet like as the israelites we're prone to think that we can find life from the law if we're not careful but as fallen creatures this is one of our fundamental mistakes That is looking to rules to find life. In verses 15 through 25, I admit it's a complicated argument. But when you come to the Bible, you have to have your thinking cap on. You know, the Bible message is really a simple message. Yet the Bible message is a profound message at the same time. There is a profound simplicity to the Bible. And when you study the scriptures, you are studying the very revealed mind of God. You know that God himself has revealed his mind in these verses of scripture. So these are not easy verses to follow. And I read them. I'll try to unpack them and break it down into smaller packages so we can understand it because these are very significant verses that all of the, the Bible hinges upon that is, the truth and the theology, the precept and the foundation promises that are given here. Now, in these verses that we just read, God, rather, Paul is discussing the, the whole law, the matter of the law of God, the whole matter. Of the law. This is not as familiar to us as maybe it would have been to the Jewish people. It may not be as familiar to us in 2022 as it was in the time when Paul wrote it, but its message is just as pertinent today and really just as applicable to us today as they were when Paul, led by the Holy Spirit, penned this. He's talking to us about the purpose. Amen. Of the law. In these verses, he mentions the law a number of times. His purpose is to show us what the law is intended to do and what the law of God can do and what the law of God cannot do. When we think about the law, we think primarily of what? Ten Commandments. And there's actually much more than that, but we'll just stick with emphasizing the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments. Never has saved anyone. The Ten Commandments cannot save. And Paul's going to emphasize that. In fact, no one could even keep the Ten Commandments. These are the basic truths and messages that Paul's bringing out in these verses. I want us to see three basic things. We're going to add a fourth coming out of this passage. Number one, in in understanding why the law is given to us. In understanding this, the first thing I want you to see in verses 15 through 18 is the law and God's promise. The law and God's promise. Look at it again, verse 15. Brethren, I speak after the manner of men, though it be but a man's covenant, yet if it be confirmed, no man disannuleth or addeth thereto. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises Made. Remember he gave us last week in this passage, the previous verses, the illustration of Abraham. And he's telling us that Abraham was saved by his faith, not by the act of circumcision, not by something that had to do with a technicality of keeping the law. And so God promised in verses 6 through 9 that we've already looked at, that he would bless the world. Through Abraham. Yet the law that God gave to Abraham's offspring, it actually blocked the flow of this blessing. And that's what verses 10 through 14 were emphasizing the blessing. And so what God promised to Abraham, it has not, it cannot Come through the law. It is just the opposite. In fact, remember Israel is under the law's curse. We saw that last week. If they're going to follow the law, they're under the curse of the law. If you decide not to accept Jesus, you then have to go the only alternative, and that is by keeping the law. If you keep the law, you are under a curse. Unless you keep all the law perfectly in its entirety, every day of your life, never slipping, not one time. If you do, you're under a curse. And so you're either under a blessing because you've come to Jesus by faith or you're under a curse because you're attempting to maintain the law by works. And so here in verses 15 through 18, Paul feels compelled to deal with how God's law relates to that promise he gave to Abraham. How then can Abraham be blessed? How can his offspring be blessed? How can the children of Abraham be blessed if the law only brings curse? What's the relationship of the law and God's promise? More specifically, he's telling us how does the law that God gave Moses, because Abraham comes along, he gives the blessing to Abraham. 430 years later, he gives the law on Mount Sinai to Moses how does that law still relate to God's promise of blessing? And we, if we follow the line, storyline of Scripture in this, this realm, because every religion, every religion of the world, it maintains some fabric of having to keep the law. And so let's follow. That's what Paul is saying. These Judaizers are telling you to go back to the law. You're thinking you've got to keep the law. You're thinking that these Gentiles who do not have Jewish blood in them, if they're going to be saved the way the Jews are saved, you're thinking and you're telling these Gentiles they've got to do something with the law. And so Paul says, let's kind of follow this train of thought. The promise, well, let me ask you the question. I got to do something to help keep you awake. The promise to Abraham the promise came to Abraham of blessing Abraham and his seed. The law comes to Moses. Which came first? The promise to Abraham or the law to Moses? Yeah, the promise to Abraham. He's first in the Bible. He's, he's coming along first. If you just think about it in its order. And so first came the promise to Abraham. Then 430 years later, the law Comes to Moses. Now, here's the thought process that the Judaizers and the Jews today would have. And that is, they're presuming that the law, which came much later, would actually direct the flow of God's blessing. When God's blessing actually came first, the promise of God's blessing came before the law without the law. But the thought today is we have to have the law if we're going to get God's blessing. And so in this kind of a scenario, what they're looking at is the law is kind of like a funnel. And they take the law and they all of God's promises and blessings are funneled into that law. Well, that's how first century Jews would have thawed and tried to stir up trouble in Galatia. And Paul says that's a serious crime against the good news of Jesus Christ. And by the way, again, that's how the 21st century Jews would view things. If you want blessing promised to Abraham, you've got to obey and keep the law that was given to Moses. And so have you ever seen one of those advertisements Maybe on the computer, maybe reading something, maybe walking through a place of, of shopping. And it, and it was an advertisement for um, an iPad, an advertisement for an all-expense paid trip to uh, the, the, uh, the Bahamas or, or someplace or, or Maui. And, and all, you have to, all you have to do is, if you're on the computer, just click right here. That's all you have to do. And then you click. And then another click, and another click, and then an agreement, and a name, an address, credit card. And after a little bit of time, you realize you've been suckered into one of these too-good-to-be-true offers. And while they wow you with the great promise, you soon realize it really wasn't that simple. You realize you only receive the promised gift once you've done something far more involved, much more complicated. Paul, however, says that God's promise and the way the Judaizers are trying to tell God's people in the early church and how religion is trying to tell people today that God's promise and God's law They don't relate to each other that way. See, the law, what Paul is telling us, notice in verse number 15. Notice this word, you get down to the end. No man disannulleth or addeth thereto. What he's saying is that the law does not modify. The law doesn't complicate the promise. He's using a contract thought here. Um, you, you sign a contract, you buy this car for $15,000, you drive it off the lot, you get home, you sleep on it, and you wake up the next morning, you think, I don't want to pay $15,000 for this car. And so you go back to the dealership and you say, I only want to pay 10000 for it. And the dealer says, what you think does not disannul nor does it change or complicate the original terms. Nor can the dealer, once you take it home, call you up and say, hey, we agreed to 15,000, but I'd like to raise it to 20,000. No, they can't change that. And what Paul is saying is that, yes, when God gave the law, it doesn't have any bearing upon the promise that God gave. Paul is using this human example. Do you see the point All right. Let me try it some more. He's, He's using this human illustration and analogy to point out that no matter what the law specified to Moses and the law was given by God, the law is very important. The law is real. The law means something, but the law has no bearing upon God's promise of blessing, God's salvation. It does not change God's promise. It doesn't have any fine print where God says, my blessing and my promise of eternal life, it now hinges upon what you do with the law. It can't disannul. It cannot change it. It cannot make the promise of none effect, as it says at the end of verse number 17. Uh, Man cannot add to it. Man cannot change it. What God stated to Abraham, Abraham, if you will put your faith in me, You'll find blessing, and everyone following, everyone after, in the entirety of the human race, if they do the exact same thing that you do, and that is put their trust in me, they too will be blessed, regardless of the law. Do you see the point? His point is once an agreement has been made, it cannot be changed. Or cancel. God is the one who made the agreement. So he goes back to that promise in verse 16. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. So Paul clarifies, here's something that's very important. Now notice, now to Abraham and his seed, is that singular or plural? Plural typically would have... um, uh, more than one involved. Look at verse 16. Now to Abraham and his seed, where the promise is made, he saith not as to and to seeds, plural, as of many, but as of one. See, we just keep reading how it expounds and explains. So he's emphasizing, well... Not dealing with many as the idea would be found in seed and then seeds, but he's emphasizing thy seed, singular, not plural. Who, and this is what Paul's clarifying, who's the recipient of God's promise? And this is important. The recipient is not Israel. The recipient is not the church. He says that in what God made, the promise that God made to Abraham and to his seed, the question is, who is Abraham's seed singular? And we know it's singular because of what he says. He says, we're talking about one. And by the way, I believe In absolute inerrancy of the Word of God. I believe that the Bible is without error. I believe everything about the Bible is completely, totally inspired. I don't understand everything about the Bible, but I believe everything in the Bible. Not only are the tenses of the verbs inspired of God, but the singulars and the plurals are inspired of God. And God is saying to Abraham, I'm going to make a promise to you and your seed, not plural. Who is the seed? The Lord Jesus Christ. See, God is saying, I'm going to go into a salvation agreement with you, Abraham, and I'm going to be the party of the first part, and you, Abraham, and the Lord Jesus will be the party of the second part. So God gets into the agreement, and then the Lord Jesus gets into the agreement. So he's talking here about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, all the promises of salvation come together in the person of Jesus Christ, Abraham was saved exactly like you if you've been saved. Like you if you will be saved. Only salvation comes the same way from Adam to, to the end of the human race. They can only be found in Jesus. And so Abraham was saved exactly like you. You and I would only be able to be saved exactly like Abraham. Here then is the key point about God's promises. Christ Jesus is the one true beneficiary of all of God's promises. God's given everything to Christ, everything. Every blessing God wants to give to this world is found in Jesus. Everything that God wants to give to you and me, it's already in Jesus. And thus, every blessing you see, every good thing in this world can only be found in Jesus Christ. We share in these promises, therefore, by coming to Jesus, the same way Abraham did. You say, but Jesus was not alive in the time of Abraham. Oh, yes, he was. He just had not been physically born, but he had been alive. He was was alive at the creating of this world. He was alive um, before this world was ever uh, thought of or breathed out. And he's never had a beginning and he'll never have an end. And so everything comes together in Jesus. But the question is, how do we get into Abraham? Well, not by getting into Israel through the law. You get into Abraham and share the blessing of God by faith, faith in Jesus Christ. So Christ is the center of all this. And so he mentions here the first thing, what is the purpose of the law? And we find that the relationship of the law and God's promise, well, we're going to still get to the purpose of the law, but the law and God's promises, God's promise of blessing, it does not hinge upon the law. The second thing he dives into in verse 19, wherefore then serveth the law. And this is where I get the title for this. Why then the law? That's what he's saying. Where then serveth the law? What's the purpose of the law? And notice what he says. It was added because of what's the word? Transgression. So the second thing I want us to see is the law and sin. He's pointing out the first few verses, the first couple of verses, verse 15 through 18, the significance of the law and God's promises. God's promise was made to Abraham. Abraham, you believe me? You'll find blessing and everyone after you believes me, they'll find eternal life in looking to Jesus to come while we look back at what Jesus did on the cross. Now he touches on the law and sin. Why then the law, Paul says, verse 19. That's a good question. And Paul has a good answer. It's a profound answer, but it's also a provocative answer. Verse 19, he's telling us that God gave the law because of sin. God gave the law because of sin. Until he could do something with our sin. Think about it. God gave the law because of sin. And that's why societies write laws. Communities issue ordinances. Why? Because of sin. They may not know the word, but that's what it is. Parents make rules because of sin. Teachers post classroom guidelines because of sin. Employers have company policies because of sin. And of course, if children and students and citizens and employees were always obedient and honest and people of integrity, there'd be no need for rules, much less Consequences, suspensions, expulsions, jails and, and courts, etc. And if God's people were perfectly sinless, there'd be no need for the law, much less it's curses, much less it's judgment. So the question that Paul asks, "Wherefore then serveth the law? Why the law? In other words, if we're not saved by keeping the law, or if keeping the law doesn't change God's promise, why did God give the law in the first place? And so, verse number 19 gives us the first purpose of the law. Here it is to make man aware of the nature of sin. It says here it was added because of transgressions. Romans 4 and verse 15 tells us where there's no law, there's no transgression. 1 John 3:4, sin is the transgression of the law. So Paul says God gave the law to make us aware of the nature of sin. You know, before we had our modern highways and all the cars that we have, there was just the the transportation of horses and and buggies. And then came along a horseless carriage. And one day the horseless, horseless carriage came through town And dust was flying, men driving with goggles on and scarf flying in the wind and and chickens would scatter and people would gawk and horses bolted. and, And it caused a general havoc as the horseless carriage came through town speeding at a fast pace of 25 miles an hour. And because of the danger that it brought, Somebody said there ought to be a law. There ought to be a law. Somebody needs to make a law. But there wasn't a law. And so the man who drove the horseless carriage through town was not breaking any law. Not that he was aware of because there was no law for the horseless carriage at that time. And he could drive through town at 10 miles an hour or 25 miles an hour. And so there was no law that he was breaking until a law was established and then the law established how fast he could go and if he violated that then a ticket could be given and the law came to say you cannot do this it's like coming to an intersection there's no stop sign someone has taken the stop stop sign down or a stop sign was not put up and you collided with another car and and you're not aware that you're breaking any law because there's nothing that says do this or don't do this. But once you see that red sign with white letters, S-T-O-P, and you decide to ignore that, then you have a transgression, a violation, a sin. It reminds me years ago when I was a youth pastor, we had a young lady in our youth group and we were in Tennessee. And so you just picture Tennessee, you picture the accent and we were driving her home and we passed a sign and she just said, I've got a question, pastor. She said, what does DIP mean? And I thought DIP and I said, where did you see that? She said, I saw that on a a sign, DIP. I I said, dip, (laughs) there's a dip in the road. Oh, yeah, I get it. And um, blonde, it just is amazing what, uh, what the color, well, never mind. But you burst on through that intersection and you find, uh, there's, you, you do so at your own risk. Well, the Bible says the law and the purpose of God. By the way, the only reason why I mention blonde jokes is, is there's no reality to it. And, um, and they don't get it anyway. So it doesn't, doesn't, I'm not offending anybody, but... Um, Moving on fast. And the law of God and the purpose of God was to make us aware of the nature of sin. And uh, you see, the law doesn't make you a sinner. It never does. It just shows that you are a sinner. In the law of God, it says, thou shalt not covet. And always, even before the law of God was given, man coveted in his heart, did so in the Garden of Eden. You know, man would want what his neighbor may have and, and want that, and man may put other gods before God, and, and before the law said, don't do this, he did it anyway. But once the law was given, it just simply show, showed that the, the essence of sin, the nature of sin, that's why God gave the law, is to create in man a consciousness of sin. Yeah, that's what the preaching of God's word does. Law preaching is preaching what God says to do and not do. And what it does is it drives home to people that we're not as good as we want to think we are. We're not as good as what God says we are. And people will actually go to a church based upon how well the church makes them feel. The church is not designed to make you feel good. The church is designed to tell you about the one who can make you good. But that's not going to happen as long as you argue with the lawgiver. Not only does the law show us the nature of sin, but a second thing that the law does is to show us our need of a Savior. You see, the law makes you aware that you cannot save yourself. Many times someone says, I'm saved because I keep the law. Well, what that tells you is that they haven't really read the law, not honestly. Because if they read the law, they'd recognize I can't do it. So he's talking about here the the relationship of the law and God's promises. The law cannot change what God promised. The law also, it is given to us in relation to sin. It points out sin in our life. And it points out the fact we need somebody to do something about the sin. But there's a third thing that Paul mentions in verse 21 and 22. Because remember, these Judaizers are saying, we need to go back to the law. So Paul says, let's figure out what the law's for. In verse 21, he says, Is the law then against the promise of God? Well, God forbid, for if there had been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. But the scriptures have concluded all under sin that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. So Paul then is seemingly saying that the law's purpose, well, it's been negative up until this point. It's just telling us how bad we are. But he's saying, is the law contrary to the promises of God? Is the law going to violate, is it against God's promise? And he said, no, that's that's not the case. But we understand the law has been given to point out the awareness of sin and to point out the fact that we need somebody to help us in this problem of sin. It'd be like me bringing up those three rules with my kids. We're not going to talk back. You're not going to interrupt and you're going to obey the first time. And it's like if they ask you, if you were to ask them, what are those rules for? And they tell you, well, these rules are given by my my dad so that we get in trouble. Well, that's not the design, but that's how people think of the rules. They think of God's law as it's just to, to, to make us in trouble all the time. You know, come on, dad, it's not fair. These rules are out to get us. Well, that's kind of the response Paul was anticipating. And these statements about the law. So his answer, he answers his own question. Well, certainly the law is not against God's promise. But why not? Note what, he, note what he says here. If the law had been given, if there was a law given that could give life, then he said, we'd be doing everything we could to keep the law to get life. But the law cannot give life. He's saying here that if the law could give life, then righteousness would have come by the law, but it can't. And so he goes on to give us two beautiful pictures of the power of the law. Verse 22, he gives us the idea that the scripture hath concluded all under sin. The word concluded means to be locked up. So so the law then points out the fact that all of us are locked up, concluded, locked up in sin. Yeah, this is tighter than Alcatraz. You can't get out of this jail of sin. The law of God put the whole human race in jail. It locked up every single one of us. When the word of God is preached When we become aware of what the law of God teaches, it takes us to the prison house of sin. It locks us inside. It closes the doors. It puts shackles and chains on our hands and on our feet. And we have absolutely no power whatsoever to break the shackles of sin. And we become a prisoner of sin. That's the picture, picture of the power of the law. But not only does he give us the picture of a jailer or jail, a place of incarceration, but notice he says in verse 24, here's another picture of sin, the law rather. He says in verse 24, wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. The The law is given to us as our educator, schoolmaster. It could be translated child guardian. The law is given to us to lock us up. And the law is given to us to educate us about sin. You know, Christ Jesus died to deal with our sin, to free us from the law and its consequences. That's why Galatians chapter 5 and verse 5 we'll get to in another day. For we, through the Spirit, wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. Again, it's a complex passage we've been looking through, but his challenge to us as we grapple with the law and its purpose, we've seen that the law does not undermine the promise of God. If God's promised blessing to Abraham by faith, God's promise to us, come to Jesus by faith. And God's dealing with the law in our life. The law points out the sin in our life. It points out the nature of sin. It points out our sin nature. We were sinners prior to the law, but the law simply points it out. And then he talks about the law and life. The law can't give life. It never has. Only Jesus can give life. And so we wrap it up with, well, how does the law relate to us? What can we glean, if anything, from our understanding of the role of God's law And God's plan to be a blessing. Well, first, remember that the law has an important role in your life, but it's limited. The law's purpose is not to give life, but it's to help guide us in living out the life we already have. When we need motivation, don't look to the law. Look to life. Look to the life giver. Look to Jesus. The second thing is, we must root our lives in God's promises, not in the law. This is what it means to be gospel-centered, gospel-rooted. People who root their lives in the law, they tend to be cold, sharp, prickly, brittle, moody, mean, disgruntled. Why? Because it's it's they're heavy laden. They're they're, they're under a weight and a burden to try to perform. Jesus came to deliver us from that mindset. And the third thing is how this applies to us is that we must rely upon the Holy Spirit by faith to live the life that he's given to us. How do we do that? Well, treasure God's promises in his word. Treasure every promise that he's given to you. And then experience the presence of the Holy Spirit. Oh, the law is, is real. The law is powerful. Paul said in Romans 7, I would not know sin had it not been for the law. Well, that's miserable to know sin. No, because he tells us it's the schoolmaster. The law is what brought him to Jesus. He said the law is good, but the law's not the answer. Jesus is, and Jesus is still the answer. Though some may say he doesn't fit their philosophy, I know Jesus is still the answer. He's always been. He always will be. Let's stand together, please.